Welcome to Luxury On Air, where we explore the trends, innovations, and personalities defining and redefining the luxury industry. Welcome to Luxury On Air. I'm Karin Segeri, and I'm your host for this 10th episode. I'm delighted to have Amanda Elder and Paul Gardiner for our discussion today on luxury travel and how brands are adapting, given the challenges posed by the pandemic, changing consumer demands, and a greater focus on sustainability. Thank you for joining us, Amanda and Paul. Thanks for having us. Nice to be with you. Kempinski is an independent luxury hospitality group with over 125 years of history, nearly 80 properties in over 30 countries, with a belief that life should be lived with style. Mantis Group is, was founded in year 2000 by Paul's father, Adrian, 22 properties consisting of luxury hotels, ecologies, and waterways, and whose name is an acronym for Man and Nature Together is Sustainable. So maybe before we dive into our topic for today, can you first introduce yourself, give us a bit of an uh, impression about your role, and um, to get us in a travel mood, tell our listeners what is your favorite travel destination and why? Amanda, do you want to kick off? I'd love to. Well, firstly, it's very, very nice to be with you. So I am with beautiful Kempinski Hotels. I'm the chief commercial officer. And this means that I weave together the strategy for our 80 hotels in terms of all areas of sales and marketing, distribution, public relations, brand. So it's a very broad role and one that I really enjoy with a fabulous team who backs me up. I'm based in Dubai, although our head office is actually in Geneva, Switzerland, where I was based for nearly four years. But there's a lot of action in the Middle East and certainly in Asia. So I now find myself here and we look forward to opening many more beautiful hotels in the near future, Corinne. Fascinating, fascinating. And I think, Paul, you are probably already in your favorite travel destination now. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm at our flagship lodge, which is called Founders Lodge. It's down in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And um, yeah, I'm Paul Gardner, the CEO of Mantis. And, you know, I, obviously my father is the chairman of our group and I've grown up in this industry, in the hospitality industry, um, which is obviously in, in terms of Mantis angled towards conservation and sustainability. One of the, the things that I probably enjoy most about Mantis is taking the DNA from South Africa that is kind of home, homegrown for us, which is obviously related to conservation again, and taking that to other parts of the world. So new business development, but in the eco space is uh, what drives me. That's my real passion. And so I support our development team. Mantis uh, is in, in early stages of expanding and broadening its horizons out of Africa. So it's a very exciting time to be with the group. It absolutely sounds like it. And it's, it's fabulous that wherever you might be, we can connect now. Technology is just helping us so much these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe one more question for you. Uh, given that both of you represent companies that deliver luxury experiences, what does luxury mean for you? And Paul, do you want to maybe take this question first? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Luxury in terms of Mantis is um, it's not necessarily about the linen and the comfortable bed and the, and the fancy bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's almost embracing both. So that is important to us, but um, it's also making sure that the guest experience is top notch. And obviously the guest experience is, is um, above and beyond because it's not, um, 
it's not necessarily just lying uh, alongside the pool. It is, um, you know, getting out into the wilderness and embracing that and, you know, going on safari and, and just getting under the skin of, of, uh, of what we stand for conservation. So there's a bit of, there's a bit of both for us. Um, you know, we, we obviously um, strive to, to run luxury in very remote parts of the world, and that's not easy because obviously you don't have the, 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 the staff um, and perhaps the talent. And so, you know, it comes with lots and lots of challenges with people, which people don't recognize. And then also in terms of supply of, of, um, uh, of food and, and those basic things, you know, when you're that remote, it's, it's, it's quite, it comes with a lot of challenges. So we, um, we have to work extra hard to produce a luxury project product. And I think we, we managed to achieve that. But as I said, it's a nice balance between um, the adventure and the, the luxury of the lodge or hotel. So, so that's what luxury travel means to you, Paul. But for you, what is your personal luxury in life? <laughs> My personal luxury in life, you know, I, um, I guess for me, the luxury is nature. That to me is my absolute win, you know, just to get out and, and, and be able to uh, get out into the wilderness, breathe the fresh air. That, that, that's my luxury. Sounds tempting. Amanda, what is, what is, if you had to think about what luxury means for you, what do you do? What do you say? Well, immediately I have to say uh, that it's about time with family. It's just so hard to capture those moments and those experiences. And so the luxury of time and the luxury of connection, the luxury of network, I mean, that, that to me really is what it's all about. And I was listening to what Paul was saying. I, you know, it's incredible that you can be talking about experiences out there in the bush and nature, and some of it is very real and uh, correlates to our beautiful city hotels and our resort hotels in less remote destinations in terms of really finding those skilled Uh, people that, that have an incredible attitude for luxury travel and for looking after the guest. And if I was to capture Kempinski's understanding, its perspective on luxury, it all starts with the guest, listening to them, not being prescriptive, really delivering that individual and bespoke experience. And of course, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to, to really deliver that. But the guest journey is where it's all at for our hotels, no matter what the location. And, and as you said, we're global throughout 30 odd countries. Yeah, and, and listening to both of you, to, to be able to deliver a luxury experience, there's a lot of hard work behind it. If it's in the bush or if it's in a city, it just takes mm -hmm. a lot of hard work. Yes. So if you look maybe More broadly, I mean, we know that the travel industry and the world overall has faced a lot of challenges with, uh, with the pandemic. I mean, border closures, restrictions, uh, everybody had to react quite quickly to adapt their operations, supply chain. Um, now, and we see that even yesterday with the, the Swiss announcement, the world is cautiously opening up. I mean, traveling is resuming. Uh, people are looking forward to traveling again. Um, how has Kempinski you know, gone through this period and Are you continuing uh, opening up hotels and, and, and what is coming up in the near future? Well, it, it certainly was a, an extremely challenging time and we've had certain ups and downs depending on those locations. And we've found such an incredible spirit within the company to be able to see the way forward and to believe that there was always light at the end of the tunnel. 
And I think some of the highlights actually were the openings that we managed to have in the last 12 months. In fact, we had five. And when you think of our smaller company on the world stage, that really is a lot, particularly in a pandemic time. So I'm reflecting really on now Kempinski Palace Engelberg in Switzerland, just such a beautiful property and will be uh, really creating even more recognition of that lovely uh, location, which is about 45 minutes from Lausanne. We also opened two stunning hotels in China, one in Nanjing, one in Guangzhou. And then uh, we're now embarking upon the Cayo Guillermo, which is a overwater bungalow resort in Cuba, in southern Cuba. And uh, that we've just really opened in January. So we're starting to get that recognition for that tourism, which had really been largely for Canadians. But I think it's becoming far more mainstream. A lot of Europeans absolutely love to take uh, a jet and get on down there to the Cayo. It's completely unspoiled. And then lastly, I would have to mention the next very exciting opening is the first property in Israel for us. And that's going to be the David Kempinski in Tel Aviv opening March 15th. So there's so much action and activity, and we really had to focus on that versus the extreme difficulty of welcoming our valued guests, because most of the time borders prevented them from visiting us. But it also gave us that opportunity to plan and then deliver great guest experiences when we did open up our new properties. When I listen to you, the world has no limits. Right. I agree. That's how it sounds. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I think what we've noted as well, something that has become really more uh, apparent during the pandemic uh, is the impact on environments. I mean, uh, people have focused much more on them, but as well on the impact that they have uh, around surrounding them. So, Paul, I mean, Mantis has been focusing on conservatism and ecotourism for over 20 years. So my question to you is, how can we travel responsibly? Or can we, how do we limit the impact that we have on the local environments and communities by traveling? You know, it's a it, it's a very difficult question to to answer that because obviously you've got your mass market tourism and you know they they live for that. I know living in the UK myself, um, it's uh, you, you you that that dreary uh, British winter is tough and and the and the charters leave in their droves when uh, when times are normal, and so you know how do those big resorts deal with it? I know how we can deal with it as a as a smaller property because it's it's about almost offsetting that guest's visit when they're here. They don't just come and uh, lounge around and bounce around on a Land Rover. We try and immerse them into the uh, the real DNA of the property. So I'll give you a good example. Um, while COVID was on, in fact, we had an American client come out and he said he wanted something unusual, and so we were in the process of having to uh, dart um, some of our rhinos. Uh, we have to do, we have to take DNA samples from them occasionally, and so we saved um, a couple of procedures for this American client, and he came and partook in that activity. He funded the whole experience, and uh, you know we, it involves helicopters and and uh, expensive vets and darts and all kinds of things, and um, and and it was one of those experiences for him that was life changing. So he will go back an ambassador for our rhinos, you know, made a big donation to the foundation, etc. So we try and get our guests to uh, really immerse themselves into the the experience that they come in. That's, so we're almost trying to educate. Um, I like the term edutainment. Um, and, and so that they're learning when they're here and they go back to the, 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 back to Europe or, or America, uh, well-versed and, you know, ambassadors to 
to mantis and what we're doing on the ground. And then we also work pretty closely with the communities because, you know, they go hand in hand. If you don't look after uh, the community, well, they're not going to look after and respect your wildlife. And so we try and employ uh, a lot of local staff where we can, um, and that could be through helping them set up their own little SMEs or whatever else, or just simple employment at our property. So, um, and, and that's obviously inspired by people traveling here because without people, it all collapses. Um, and, and so we've had a, a torrid time um, because, you know, we don't just have to look after um, rates um, and, and, you know, water and electricity bills, et cetera. We've, we've got a lot more to look after in our safari parks because, you know, a lot of them are fenced off. So you've got very high electricity bills. Uh, you've got vulnerable animals like rhino. So you require a full-time anti-poaching unit um, to patrol at night. And, um, and there are a lot of those intricacies that people don't get. So mm. when we bled during COVID, we bled, we bled extra because, you know, we're so reliant on that foreign guest. Um, but, yes, so that's kind of how we offset it. And we, I think we've become more precious about that by setting up this whole Mantis Impact experience. It's a brand new um, uh, pillar in, within our organization. And we like the immersive experience and the edutainment. And, and getting the guests to go back well-informed of what's going on in the planet. So that's the bit we do. Um, so, so is, yeah. are, are most of the guests interested, like the, the example of the American tourists that you gave, or are some just looking for entertainment and, and you know, relaxation and not really interested around the communities and the places they are, or do you really see interest? I think that pre-COVID, it was all about ticking the box, you know, coming to see Africa's big five and, and bouncing around in the Land Rover. But I think we've all said it, the conscious traveler is beginning to emerge out of COVID. And so we hope to have a lot more of these types of guests come through now that really care. And, and I'm, I'm myself and the team are really ensuring that. We, we, the game reserve that I'm on now, and the idea is to absolutely flip it on its head, you know, and have a kids program here because this is very much a family lodge experience. Um, that they, the, the kids are, you know, they're not going to be um, um, bouncing around in Land Rovers either. Instead, we're going to get them down into the valley here and we, we're going to do um, interpretive trails and they're going to understand, you know, uh, the different types of antelope and learn how to track them. Um, I have a business with the adventurer and the survival expert, Bear Grills, and uh, Bear, Bear, we, we're going to launch a Bear Grills program here to kid, teach kids about survival. And, and just getting them right back to the grassroots. So we don't want iPads and iPhones here. This is where you come and have fun in nature. And that's, uh, that's what we're trying to imprint on all of them. That sounds very good because the young generation is definitely spending too much time on iPhones and iPads. Oh, scary. <laughs> I know if you've scary. got kids, you know all about it because I'm starting to see it, see it and it scares me. <laughs> I do, I do. Um, I think, um, I mean, you mentioned sustainability is so important for them. And sustainability is now, we see a really a request by the, by the customers. Some because, and the customers in the service industry are, of course, queen and queen. Um, what are the customers looking, and Amanda, I think this question is for you. What are the customers looking at from a luxury hotel? What are they expecting? And has this changed, like Paul mentioned as well in the adventure travel, has this changed since the last few months or during the pandemic? I, it definitely was a heightened respect for such uh, importance, you know, that sustainability is on everyone's mind, everyone's lips. And I'd like to give you a few examples of where we see it. Now, uh, remarkably, I'll start with our corporate guest. 
we have many opportunities to uh, vie for corporate business, you know, and we're obviously competing against other hotel chains in those uh, bigger cities. Now, we have to fill in very detailed information. And at the forefront of these sheets, they're now expecting us to talk, talk about how we are limiting water usage, how we are managing our electricity supply, uh, do we have natural gardens that may be uh, supplying some sort of herbs, uh, you know, for the cooking? Uh, where do we get some of our supplies from? Are we aware of uh, the supply chain that brings the goods to a busy, big corporate hotel? And I can tell you that because Kempinski took a very clear view on this, that we have won contracts and we've actually won it away from competitors that you would perhaps have expected to have a very clear viewpoint, but they really did not. So I've found that really, really interesting. And that has been evolving probably over the last six years or so and became even more important through COVID. Then when you talk about the truly luxury leisure customer, uh, we are uh, partnered with a fabulous organisation called the Virtuoso Travel Network. And these are the luxury travel advisors all around the world, predominantly in America, but most certainly throughout the rest of the globe as well. Now, we are one of only two hotel chains that have met their extremely high standards of expectation. And we're able to now stamp ourselves as a sustainability brand that Virtuoso wishes to partner with. I think that as well is remarkable. There are much bigger chains with far more resources, and yet for whatever reason, they perhaps haven't gone through the all-important steps to get this accreditation. So we have done very specific things, a lot of solar power, a lot of growing of, of fresh vegetables and garden uh, produce. We have uh, much um, looked at the amenities. We've worked with uh, Ferragamo, Salvatore Ferragamo, and you may be surprised to know that they are equally uh, into this incredible subject. So in our beautiful resort in Dominica in the Caribbean, they've specially made larger size Ferragamo amenities for our rooms, whether it be the shampoo or the, or the body lotions. So they're not those small sizes. They're the larger refillable sizes. And they're even able to um, basically work with that plastic, or not plastic, but the special um, adhesive uh, to do with those lotions uh, and shampoos. And it's all completely recycled. So this makes us feel good as a brand. It certainly translates to the luxury customer. They have a high expectation of this and, and they really do want to be educated. And funnily enough, Paul, we also refer to that edutain. I love it. And particularly with, with the children, uh, because they are asking us. And to me, this is one of the most incredible uh, advents over the last three years is it's not the adults telling the children. It's the children questioning the adults. So, yes, Kempinski takes it seriously. We are responding to the expectations of our guests uh, and, and our third-party customers, our partners, and, and we're proud of that. A lot of, lot of efforts as well in this area this space I hear from you, Amanda. Yes. Mm. So, um, Paul, I mean, you were telling us that um, you you want to have uh, your your customers um, see new new areas, new spaces, new countries. But one is wondering, I mean, is should there be uh, places on Earth that stay untapped because you want to <laughs> you know stay have some conservation in some very very remote places where uh, where human beings are not going at all? Or do you think it's still legitimate to have people traveling to these places just to discover and maybe 
sustain and, and develop local communities? I love that. I think it's a really good question that you ask there because, um, you know, a, a very famous man once said, and, and I'm, I'm referring to uh, Sir David Attenborough, who we all know, you know, he, he says, if you don't go and experience um, something, particularly in the wilds, uh, because obviously he's a, he's a conservationist, so I'll relate it to that. Um, if you don't get to go and experience and, and see it and feel it, then you don't really care. And, uh, and I think, you know, I think if you get the opportunity to travel, for instance, to the Amazon jungle, and uh, there's an opportunity to really get under the skin of that and you fall in love with a place and that you're really going to start caring about it. And I, it's, I think it's quite an important thing to say because funny enough, we're, we're involved with the, um, the only lodge in, um, on the continent of Antarctica. So you fly from Cape Town, and it's a five-hour journey in a private jet, and you land at Wolfang Airport, which is owned by a family um, in South Africa, and they have a beautiful camp there. And, uh, you know, we get asked the question, uh, you know, are you you're sending private jets there, and is that right? And I, I often find myself asking that question. Um, but then I, then I, I, I take it back to, to the Attenborough point that he raises, because I've just come back from a week in Antarctica. I was there um, just before Christmas. And um, it is what we experienced is the most exceptional, exceptional place on the planet. And I was so privileged to have gone there. And the, the beauty of it is it is, it is a very much an elite product. Uh, um, it's very luxurious, but it's only open for three months of the year, simply because you can only access it for three months of the year, because then the rest of the year, the blizzards come. Um, at this time of the year, the sun doesn't set, so it's pretty special in terms of that. But it's um, it's exclusive to probably about 60 guests a year that pay upwards of $50,000 per person. And so um, everything that goes into Antarctica comes out at the end of season. And those 60-odd guests that go are super wealthy, and they often want to get involved in a greater way to protect Antarctica after having uh, um, uh, been there and, and, you know, just touched nature. So I think, um, I think there is a lot to be said by it, but if we bring it back to part, parts of Africa, again, where you've got communities that are just living off the land, the, what, what you want to avoid is obviously they, they all um, end up farming with cattle and beef because, you know, it's, perhaps the meat is more flavorsome than, than antelope. So what happens is, the antelope, um, the, the, the deer, whatever you call it, wherever you are in the world, uh, will get taken out and replaced with sheep, goats, and cattle, because that, that is the that is the the preferable diet for the local community. And also, um, uh, you know, that's it, it, it's something that they'll farm, and nature gets destroyed. Um, so if if you can justify another income, so let's say let's say somebody builds a lightweight, light footprint lodge and starts attracting foreigners to that wilderness area or to that particular um, area that's been devastated by um, communities because they were farming it. And it's now attracting super wealthy um, international guests and employing a lot of those local people that own that land. Um, it gives the, the, the land the opportunity to recover because it's now sustainable through other means of, of income for that community. And that's why the ecotourism and sustainability model works. I mean, I've given you a very, very simple example of that. Um, so, because the last wilderness areas on this planet, you know, with the way we're breeding, 
and the way we are encroaching on wilderness, it'll all be gobbled up before we know it. So I think there's a lot to be said about creating these ecotourism um, and places on, 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 on Earth. You make us feel better again because we all plan on traveling again. And um, I fully agree to your points. It's so much in, more enriching when you are there and when you can speak and exchange with the locals and, and you don't forget, you never forget a place where you've been and you've, you've spent some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, very true. It's, it's so true. Um, thinking about that, Amanda, uh, I mean, you're, you have told us that you're developing in, in, in Tel Aviv, you're going to China, you're, you're having a great opening in, in Cuba. What are the criteria that you use when you decide uh, on going? Because obviously your properties are all different. Right? You don't have one hotel that looks like another. You're having some ecologists opening as well. How do you how do you decide where to invest, how to invest, and and um, and, and and when to invest? Yes, it's it's a great question. Also, But firstly, it's where we add value. So I think that's really the the very first and most important thing. Is there an opportunity for us to bring? our European luxury hotel perspective and hospitality experience to a destination. And we actually don't own most of our properties. We own just one in Munich, our beautiful Wehrseiten in Munich. Uh, and we have investment in a couple of the other properties, but mostly we're managing them. So this then evolves into a conversation of like-minded owners. Uh, we like to be where the owner trusts our brand. We have uh, some very common goals that we're uh, trying to establish together, that the investment is right, that we can most certainly bring that return that any owner would expect uh, while giving us that trust. And, you know, we are absolutely the ambassadors uh, of their hotels and, and we must ensure that we're financially successful for them. So when we consider an opening, it is really very much about Uh, the demand, the supply, what is the product like, where is the location. Uh, we, we are very well known for opening in pioneering destinations and well before it was normal to have a property in, for instance, Beijing or Budapest, in Riga or Vilnius, uh, in Russia, you know, Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, we were there. And we did well there because we listened to uh, not only the stakeholder, the most important in many ways, the owner, but also what the guests want. And then we make sure that we train and we invest in that particular city. So I don't think that Kempinski's perspective has changed substantially as we look forward through, you know, we've now made it through the lion's share, we hope, of the, of the pandemic. We still want to add value. We look for opportunities in those interesting destinations where, you know, we maybe introduce luxury travel. And we have such strong connections to the travel partners that we find we're very successful in ramping up quickly. So it's, uh, you're right in saying that they are a collection of individuals. They're very different from space to space. But on the whole, it's more about bringing out the very best in the destination alongside our owner and then making sure that it is financially viable and that we can deliver our promises. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Thank you so much, Amanda. Mm. And I mean, you're an independent hotel group and uh, Mentis, I mean, Paul, you have uh, in 2018 decided to, um, to do a joint venture with a with the larger hotel chain. What we see often in the luxury industry is that uh, because of the larger um, con luxury conglomerates, coming up with innovative ideas is not that easy. And there is often you know, a tendency as well to work with smaller startups to, to get to innovation. 
And what was the de decision for you to, to pair up with a larger group? And do you think the larger group as well wanted to reach another other consumers or need more innovation? Or what is the what is the purpose? I mean, this was, of course, the decision 2018 was pre-pandemic. Uh, we've seen since then that as well, a lot of uh, hotels, smaller hotels had, had difficulties in, 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 in surviving uh, and maybe the solution is a larger one. But can you tell us a bit more what, what made up this decision of, of doing the joint venture with the larger hotel group? Yeah, I think our timing couldn't have been better because it is very nice and comforting to know that we've got a big brother behind us today, as in Accor. Um, but, you know, for us, we we were approached by... Um, so, um, Amanda, like um, Kempinski, uh, we we own probably, um, at the time, half our portfolio and the rest we did manage. Um, so, today, we still got an equity stake in some of our properties or we own our, some of our properties outright. But... Um, we were approached by private equity um, on a couple of occasions. You know, they quite enjoyed this, this eco uh, lodge group. It was just something very refreshing to them. And um, we, we decided, we made a choice not to, not to climb into bed with th that kind of partner because you want a partner that can add value to your, your business in terms of um, distribution and putting bums in beds and, you know, understanding the hospitality industry. Whereas if you go to a private equity, they, they, they're a little bit more soulless. And so that wasn't the right fit. So when we got on the knock, a knock on the door from Accor, they um, said to us, listen, we're interested in penetrating sub-Saharan Africa. And we see that you're very well established there. And we'd like to buy 50% of you. And uh, second to that was, you know, if you look at Hyatt, Hilton, Marriott, all the big names, Radisson, they, they, they don't necessarily have an eco Lodge brand within their portfolios, and suddenly Accor did. And you know, pre-COVID, that was a nice thing to have. Coming out of COVID, it's an excellent thing to have because we talk about this conscious traveler and everything. Else. So that's very exciting for them. For us, it was, as I said, um, partnering with the right people, so that suddenly Mantis now has um, a, a global distribution system, which we and access to this incredible network that which we never had, and the buying power that comes with that, and procurement, and all kinds of good things. And then second to that was um, the loyalty program. You know, we didn't uh, have a loyalty program at all. And suddenly we've got access to 50 million people in the Western world. And I believe it's about 60 million in the, in the Eastern world. So you know, to, to begin leveraging those markets, um, th those channels is going to be just simply brilliant for us. Mm -hmm. um, when we did the deal with Accor, we also insisted that uh, we set up our own foundation. And so we did. It was part of the deal. It was a deal breaker if we didn't do it. That's how insistent my dad was. He said, we, we, if we're going to go in this together, we've got to make a difference to the planet. And so we set up the CCFA, which stands for the Community Conservation Fund Africa. And uh, it is through that we do all of our, our good work for communities and wildlife. So, um, so it's, it's been a marriage made in heaven. I think we've, we've been very fortunate on the journey. We've learned a hell of a lot from them. They've learned a lot from us. And uh, it was just sad because... As the relationship had just kicked off, COVID started. So we're still finding our way, but I think we're going to reap the benefits now because obviously it's very, as I said right at the start of this um, question, is it's very comforting to have a big brother behind you during these challenging times. And hopefully the taps will turn on again and we'll be well positioned to, um, to make a difference. And I, I hear that you still have been true uh, and, and through your ideas and to the initial ideas of, of um, respectful travel even though this joint venture happened. And yeah. so you spoke about uh, what's going on uh, in the future and, and Amanda, maybe let's let's reflect on um, what is 
after, what is the, the the world after the pandemic? Uh, we're still in it, but hopefully soon out of it. When the pandemic hit and and the store closed, and we were talking looking at the luxury industry, and that is more the the fashion industry. We spoke about you know when the shops opened again, there was this revenge shopping, and and the people were just going back to the store, and and one client was one ticket everybody was buying. Um, now of course it has loosened up a bit. The stores have mostly remained open. Travel has been difficult now throughout the pandemic. Huh? There were some highlights during the two summer breaks, but it again hit hard in the fall. If travel now becomes open again, Amanda, do you think we have this uh, revenge travel? And do you as well, similar to luxury industry, where we saw that there was more cash available because the people spent less on travel and restaurants and so on, and they wanted to treat themselves and they bought nice pieces of jewelry and watches because we see, for example, the watch statistics. I mean, they're the same level in 2019 and um, branded jewelry is doing great. Do you think we will have revenge travel? And we will have people rewarding themselves with luxury travel after the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. And all of the indicators are that guests are most certainly booking out. You know, they're booking now later in 22. They're booking in 23, most certainly with confidence. We're also very flexible with our policies on cancellation should something reoccur. But I think to answer your question, I, I'd rather not say revenge. I like the way that you say Uh, it's it's a luxury opportunity for them to return to what they truly love and what makes them feel inspired and why people are really working so hard is because they want to have these memories and experiences, whether it be with family, with friends, multi-generation families, we find them very much booking ahead with us. Uh, and I know for a fact, although we don't have a cruise arm in our company, cruises are absolutely booked solid from 23 onwards, that people want to go back to that pattern of, of, of changing their, their, uh, their life through travel. And uh, I love that term wanderlust. You know, we, we are allowed to lust after these incredible experiences. Now, as I look at where people want to go. I think it's not so much geographical anymore. And that's what I found very interesting. The pattern for us is that our villas, our opportunities to buy out a whole resort, large families traveling together, taking a wing of a hotel. It's a little more about uh, looking after themselves when they go, more of a sense of luxury and time when they arrive. And I think that people used to really save up, save up time, save up money. Uh, and perhaps with the luxury set, it really was more about time. Now they're not putting these journeys off. They're planning them, they're booking them, and they're dreaming of them. And, and quite simply put, I don't think that people are going to very quickly go back to this, uh, well, work is what it's all about. I think the advent of working from home, the acceptance uh, where it was really not so prevalent outside of the US to work from home or be an independent contractor, we're seeing that uh, really rise in popularity throughout Europe, uh, throughout uh, even Asia and certainly in the Middle East, far more freedom. And of course, freedom means time and time means you can travel. And that whole global nomad is real. So now that the borders, uh, those, those crossings where it simply couldn't get through, that's all changed. 
I think we're already seeing, led by Denmark, somewhat France, somewhat the UK, uh, this, this dropping of some of those uh, mandatory tests and mandatory requirements to travel, that yes, that, that essence of returning to the dreams and the memories is really prevalent, most certainly for Kempinski Hotels. We're very pleased with what's on the books and the future outlook of, of that business and the room categories and suite categories that are being booked. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for making us dream, Amanda. And oh, it was so good. When I was saying that I was recording this episode, my colleagues all said, oh, my God, please let us listen to this. We need some travel and some relaxation. So here we are at, at, at the end of our uh, podcast recording. Maybe if I can ask you one last question. And thank you so much uh, for spending the time with me. Is You told me what your favorite destination is. What would be your dream destination that you've not been yet, Amanda? Wow. Well, I really can't believe that Paul talked all about Antarctica because uh, this <laughs> is a this this uh, question is is a common icebreaker when I'm entertaining customers, clients, owners, and it's such a passionate subject that goes around the dinner table. I always answer Antarctica, and then a close backup for me would be uh, something like. Uh, oh gosh, where else? I mean, I've been to over a hundred countries, so I have to really wow. think. But but uh, yes, it's crazy. But look where there's nature, where there's where there's air, where there's freedom. Uh, and I guess, listen, I'll just stick with Antarctica because I think everybody can understand that it's truly a wish list, and I'm determined with my husband to experience that. So I'll have to ring you afterwards, Paul, and get some tips. <laughs> uh, it's it is magical, and, and you know, I would say it is Antarctica, but. Um, I've been, so I need to pick another place. And I tell you, one of the places that fascinates me is the country of Gabon. Believe it or not, you probably have oh. to look on the on the on the map because it's very much up and coming. Uh, the president of Gabon is uh, a big fan of um, conservation, and uh, part of the Congo is in Gabon. And uh, the minister, believe it or not, of environmental and, and, and tourism is uh, a Scotsman, which is very unusual in Africa. But between him and the president, head down, trying to protect this, this uh, last remaining wilderness. The population of Gabon is also very small. It's only two million people. But in terms of the wildlife experience, I am told that they've got huge uh, amount of gorillas. They've got some an unbelievable jungle waterways. Um, so we've got a couple of boats in our portfolio, and I'd love to put one of those on there. They've just discovered that they've got a huge um, uh, amount of um, forest elephants. That news just broke. And they thought they had a lot less. And it's almost one of those places on the planet that is uh, undiscovered. It's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, that really excites me. I think it's... Um, a, a brilliant um, a place to visit in the future. And we'll just wait for the infrastructure and everything else to happen. And then uh, we shall um, see, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go when the timing's right, but uh, it's still a little bit raw, but it might be nice to go while it is still raw. Well, thank you so much, Amanda from Dubai and Paul from South Africa. Really appreciate your time. And uh, you made us dream and you made us really looking forward to the future again. Thank you so much. Thank you for pleasure. having us. Yes, yeah, lovely to meet you, Amanda. And you, Paul, and always yeah. great to speak with you, Corinne. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for having us, Corinne. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Luxury on Air with Corinne Segetti and Felicitas Morhart. 
This podcast is provided to you by Deloitte Switzerland and the Swiss Center for Luxury Research. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a five-star review. If you're keen to stay up to date on what's trending in the luxury industry, don't forget to subscribe. As always, you can find more information about the current episode in the show notes. We wish you all the best. Until next time.